Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast with me, Matt Honeycomb-Foster, news editor here at Politics Home. I think it was William Gladstone who first said, it's on like Donkey Kong. Yep, MPs have finally backed Boris Johnson's bid to secure an election and we are all getting an early Christmas present over December 12th, snap poll. Cancel all your plans, rip up your diary, fall out with your family. So um, what shape are the parties in as they duke it out for the keys to number 10? Will Boris Johnson's latest Brexit delay cost the Tories dear? And will voters have a clue where Labour stands on the biggest issue of the day on the doorstep? Plus, John Burko is stepping down after a decade as Speaker of the House of Commons. How does he want to be remembered and how will he be remembered? I am joined today by Seb Whale, political editor of the House magazine, who is beavering away on a biography of John Burko, which is out next year? In spring next year. Spring, okay, TBC, spring. Uh, He is obviously uniquely placed to tell us about Burko's legacy. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Seb. Thanks, Matt. And also back on the pod is Kevin Schofield, who this week was diagnosed with election fever. <laughs> yeah, I've been <laughs> I've been off for a couple of days. I wasn't feeling too well, but um, I'm probably not contagious anymore. So there's a reasonable chance that you won't catch it. Probably not contagious. So I'll keep anymore. my fingers crossed for you. What more could you want? Right. So let's talk about this election, which is actually really happening. Kevin, talk us through how we ended up with this um, date, December twelfth, because it was. Sort of the fourth time lucky for the PM, wasn't it? Yeah, so he's, he's tried um, three times before this week. He, he tried three times under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act to have an election. Um, I think it was October the 15th was the initial date that he'd, that he'd wanted. Um, all seems so so long ago. It was only a fortnight ago. But um, but because under that law he needs a two-thirds majority, he never actually managed to, to get it because Labour were always opposed to it, saying that um, no deal had to be taken off the table, no deal Brexit had to be taken off the table. So he had another crack earlier this week on Monday to go for December the 12th. Uh, again, that failed because Labour primarily said that uh, they weren't in favour of December the 12th election. Jeremy Corbyn got up in the in the chamber and said, um, came up with a whole host of new excuses for not having a, a, an, an early election. He said um, no deal still wasn't off the table. Also, in December it's dark, which came as a massive revelation to absolutely nobody. Uh, and they also said that um, students would be disenfranchised um, because uh, they would be home um, for the Christmas holidays so they wouldn't be able to vote in their um, university towns. Um, so there's absolutely no way on earth we could possibly ever have an election on December the 12th. <clears throat> so, of course, the following day, Labour supported an election on December the 12th, uh, despite everything that Jeremy Corbyn had said. So, um, basically, the following day, after he'd failed again under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, Boris Johnson brought forward a one-line bill essentially saying, right, forget about the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, Here's a bill saying we're having an election on the 12th of December and that only needed a simple majority of MPs. And because Labour performed a huge U-turn and supported it, um, it meant it was um, guaranteed to pass. So that is why we're having an election on the 12th of December. Not everybody in the Labour ranks is thrilled about this uh, change of heart from Jeremy Corbyn, though, are they? No, well, what what was noticeable was when you looked at the the breakdown of of the voting numbers, I think it was 438 MPs voted for an election in the end. Um, I think only 20 voted against, but only 127 Labour MPs voted for it, and that's just over half of the total number of Labour MPs. So that shows you the level of opposition within uh, the Labour ranks. They, you know, it's not hard to find Labour MPs who are absolutely opposed 
to this election. They think that the party is heading for defeat uh, and they think that they've walked into an elephant trap set by Boris Johnson. But, you know, everyone thought that in 2017. We saw how that turned out. So who's to say? Um, Jeremy Corbyn's wasting no time in launching his campaign today. He's been kind of first out of the traps with the pitch to the country. Um, What is his message to voters going into this election? Well, it's a bit kind of like 2017 Manifesto 2.0 at the moment I think it's very much uh, trying to paint Labour as the voice of of the people uh, taking on the elites um, the rigged um, economy uh, the corrupt system which is uh, keeping the working man down Uh, in his speech today he's talking he's name checking people like Rupert Murdoch Mike Ashley the Duke of Westminster as examples of a, a shadowy elite who are pulling the strings and essentially um, making lots of money for themselves at the expense of ordinary working people. Now, you know, that was a message that they used to good effect in 2017, had a massive increase in support throughout the, the campaign. Obviously, Brexit is the elephant in the room. However, that is a much bigger um facet I think to this general election than the last one and I think in the end it will come down to whether um, politicians sort of whether voters um, trust Boris Johnson to finally get us out of the EU or they want to give Labour a go at renegotiating a deal then having another referendum. I think that's that's what it's all going to boil down to. So you said, we saw a pretty stormy PMQs yesterday where the Prime Minister was pretty obviously laying out his election pitch and, and drawing some um, red lines uh, between the two parties. What is the PM going to hammer home over the next six weeks, do you think? I think it would be a continuation of what they've hammered home so far, which is the police more police officers on the streets, 20,000 more, the NHS and, and obviously Brexit. I completely agree with... Kevin, in 2017, the election became about everything but Brexit, really. It was called because Theresa May wanted to increase the majority and get her Brexit plans through, but it became about the personalities and the pitch, whereas this has just so patently been formed because the, this parliament couldn't come to a view on Brexit. Given the nature of even when it's happening, it's less sort of optimistic, that kind of sunny disposition that Jeremy Corbyn managed to conjure up last time. It's going to be much harder to do this now. This is going to be basically about getting Brexit done. You know, we're, what, we're two and a half years on from the last one, it's still not been resolved. So I think Boris will just hammer home uh, about how the position that the Tories have been taking, about how strenuously they've been trying to get Brexit through, about how Parliament has blocked them, about the different acts of the different parties through Labour and the Ben Act, etc., in, in delaying um, this sort of nightmare for everybody. And I think it could be quite a potent thing, of course, against that, they also said they get Brexit done by the 31st of October, mm. do or die, die in a ditch, that kind of thing. So that will come back to to bite him. But equally, I think it's they've, they've done a good job of, of being able to paint why that happens. And uh, that's the message that they will uh, try and run home. I mean, I think as well, what you've got to stress is that this is an almighty gamble by, by, by Boris Johnson. I mean, at the last election, Theresa May was even further ahead in the polls at the beginning of the campaign than Boris Johnson is now and we saw how it ended badly for her. This is an election which didn't have to take place. So there's, I think one of the factors is, is will there be a backlash from voters who have got pretty much got election fatigue now? I think this is going to be our third general election in four years. We've also had the EU referendum in amongst that time. So people are 
you know, I think rightly fed up with being asked by politicians what they think. They just want politicians to, to go on with it. So there may well be a bit of a backlash to that as well. So um, it's by no means certain that um, that the Tories are going to go into this and get the, the thumping mandate that, that they're um, hoping for. Yeah, I completely agree. And, but to build on that, I also think that the people in the sort of soft middle who are perhaps completely fed up about politics, I agree, probably will stay home or at least they'll spoil their ballot or protest vote, whatever it might be. But you're going to get probably the more entrenched hard line on both sides of the debate uh, going out perhaps in, in decent numbers to vote for a heavily Remain supporting party or a heavily Brexit supporting party. And as a, res- as a result of that, we might well see similar numbers coming back in Parliament. What we, I think, an important distinction, though, is that even if it throws up a similar numbers in terms of the composition of, of Parliament, it can be very different views. You know, we've seen the number of people, I'm sure we'll come on to speak about it, the number of people who are standing down, a number of sort of um, One Nation Conservatives are, are leaving the Commons. And given that Boris will be putting forward a manifesto committing to leaving on January 31st, come what may do or die, the candidates are going to have to support that manifesto. So manifestly, even though the numbers will be similar, uh, they're more likely, there's more likely to be cohesion, perhaps, on the Tory benches than there was before. So, Kevin, let's talk a little bit about some of those MPs who are stepping down, because we've had some pretty high-profile names, haven't we? Mm. Yeah, I mean, just in the last 24 hours, we've had Amber Rudd announce that she's standing down, uh, and then last night was a bit of a surprise, Nicky Morgan announced that, that she was standing down. Now, both of them you would put on the moderate wing of the Conservative Party, they both campaigned and voted Remain in the last election. Nicky Morgan, slightly different from Amber Rudd in that she has sort of come back in to the to the Tory fold. She um, she didn't throw a lot in with the second referendum lot. Um, she looked for a compromise position and was rewarded by Boris Johnson by being brought into the cabinet when he became prime minister. So that was a that was a surprise. Um, I thought it was interesting as well as in the letter to her local association chairman explaining why she wasn't seeking renomination to be a Tory candidate. She mentioned the abuse that, that, that she's got as an as an MP and that seems to be a recurring theme, certainly amongst female MPs who are standing down talking about the the abuse that they're getting. But but Seb's right, there is definitely a trend of moderate Tory MPs departing the scene and likely to be replaced by more Brexiteer Candidates, so um, so yeah. I mean, I think we're um, we're going to see a very different makeup, certainly of the Tory party and probably of the Labour party as well after the election. Seb, you touched on it a little earlier, but is is this an open goal for the smaller parties this election? Because twenty seventeen was billed as the kind of return of two party politics. This feels a bit different, doesn't it? Yeah, it it, it does feel different. Um, I think I think you could see definitely the Lib Dems increase uh, their number of seats in the Commons. Um, the Green Party will definitely have a few people uh, voting for them as, as some form of protest, perhaps because you know, you know, if, if you're somewhere in the middle and you want a Brexit deal but you don't want no deal, I'm not really sure where your home is really at the moment. Mm. There's no, you know, Conservatives are saying they would take no deal, so you might well find that quite a few of the smaller parties end up being um, repositories for sort of protest votes. Um, but certainly, you know, there's quite a lot of antipathy towards Conservatism and the Labour Party at the moment, and um, a lot of disgruntled, disenfranchised voters. So there could well be a boost for, for the smaller parties. I think it's certainly going to be one of the most unpredictable elections for a long time. And I'm, and I'm not just saying that because I tried to predict the last one and got it horribly wrong. So I just want to put it out there early doors that uh, I'm going to try and avoid predictions. 
uh, any opportunity. A couple of seats off, I think, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a couple of dozen, but <laughs> but it was far worse than that. Yeah, um, guys, do you think? I asked both of you this. Do you think this election is going to put Brexit to bed? Will this be the <laughs> election that sorts the Brexit question? And as Boris Johnson wants to do, uh, we can move on to those sunlit uplands, Kevin. No, because you know that is a, another. That's just another false premise. The idea that. Uh, just for argument's sake, if Boris Johnson comes in, gets a majority, um, gets his deal through, then that's it. Brexit is done. I mean, it's nowhere near done. That's just the, that's the start. That, that that's us out. But then we've got the trade talks. Um, then you've got the transition period looking going to end at the end of 2020. That could be another no deal scenario if if as is likely we don't have a trade deal by then. Um, I mean, this is going to go on forever. I'm afraid to say. <laughs> Seb, any dissent from that gloomy prediction? <laughs> Kevin's absolutely right. This is just the start, and that's that's the thing that people often lose sight of. Uh, will it? I mean, listen, it might break the initial deadlock in terms of this phase one, the divorce part, if the numbers are the same, but there are more uh, supporters on the Conservative benches for what the government's doing than there are now, and less, shall we say, disruptors. Because bear in mind that people like Oliver Letwin is standing down Dominic Green's got a battle on his hands to get re-elected. I believe he's standing as an independent Mm. Conservative. I don't think he's had the whip restored yet. So in that eventuality, then you could well see that the withdrawal agreement gets voted through. However, let's throw up another scenario where, okay, it's a home parliament again, but Labour perhaps getting a few more seats or parties like the Lib Dems, the SNP and what have you, they could go into coalition with. What happens to Brexit then? I have absolutely no idea. But well, there could well be a second referendum. Well, yeah, I mean, if well, Labour's position, uh, I was going to say, is, is quite clear. It isn't really. But in essence, it's if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, their policy is that they would renegotiate the deal. So Brussels would need to renegotiate with us again. They'd, they'd negotiate a much softer Brexit deal than Boris Johnson has done, keep us in the single market, or close alignment with the single market, keep us in the customs union. They'd do that in three months, and then they'd have a referendum within six months. So you'd be looking at another referendum in June. Now, what happens if that referendum then comes back? Leave again. Um, then we'd be th- going through all of this once more. So, um, yeah, the idea that this election is going to absolutely definitively fix Brexit and get it done is for the birds really. Seb mentioned the SNP there and and the role they're going to play in this election Mm. could be hugely decisive Um, what's Labour's current position on offering uh, the SNP a second referendum they've been demanding one for for years now um, arguing that basically Brexit has changed the circumstances so much in Scotland that another independence referendum is warranted so so where are Labour at on that? Yeah, well, Labour's position now is that they would give the SNP or the Scottish Parliament the legal power, it's called a Section 30 order, the legal power to hold another referendum, but not immediately. So not in the first year of a Labour government. They would, um, so potentially in 2021, you could have another referendum, Scottish referendum, more likely to be after that, but potentially in 2021. So that is, and that is the SNP's price for propping up a Labour government, it would be, right, we will vote with you in the House of Commons on things like the Queen's speech, on your budget, but in return, we want a second referendum. And at the moment, Labour are, uh, UK Labour are saying they're up for that. The problem for Labour is that in Scotland, Scottish Labour's position is that they are completely opposed to a second referendum, but the um, the decision has been taken in London that Scottish Labour are they're quite happy to sell Scottish Labour down the river. 
So, currently in the House of Commons, as we record this podcast, uh, MPs are discussing what is probably John Burko's favourite ever statement, tributes to the Speaker. John Burko, of course, <laughs> steps down today after a more than a decade in the job. Seb is, um, as I mentioned, writing a biography of John Burko, so he has spent more time than is healthy thinking about John Burko in, in recent weeks, possibly as much as John Burko himself does. <laughs> um, so let, let's talk about who, who John Burko is. Um, why did he run for the job in the first place? And then we can perhaps talk about um, the legacy that he'll have. Well, he found himself on the back benches in September 2004. He had served as Shadow International Development Secretary under Michael Howard, and then he was, I think he was offered a, a worse role and then decided to return to the back benches. And I think it was quite apparent at this point that he'd, he'd been on his journey. You know, he used to be a very right wing, Thatcher right, member of the Federation of Conservative Students, member of that very hard line Monday Club. He was the secretary of the its uh, Immigration Repatriation Committee. So you can understand from that his kind of views on mm. on all manner of different things is very authoritarian Tory. By 2004 he'd become, he'd done this sort of big uh, conversion towards being a one nation conservative, Ken Clark loving uh, soft centrist that we know him to be today and I think he found that front, front bench life didn't suit him um, but he was always an incredibly ambitious person and it was during a conversation with Jonathan Aiken actually who was the um, cabinet minister who ended up purging himself uh, and went to prison. He worked as a special advisor in the mid-90s and they were having a conversation, I think it was about 2003. And Aiken had worked for Selwyn Lloyd, who used to be Speaker of 71 to 76. And he said to John sort of flippantly, you know, you'd be a good speaker. You know, you're quite authoritative, you've got good speech, you know, you're good orator, you can command respect, why don't you think about it? And that was when the seed was planted. So after he left the front bench... He still had all these kind of like ambitions. He was only, what was he? He's 41, still relatively young. And I think he very quickly thought, well, this is how I'm going to go about making my legacy. And from then, he started courting Labour MPs. He would send them notes after they did speeches saying, great speech, that was fantastic, you know. Uh, and his big uh, journey towards speakership began, and obviously culminated in June. 2009, and credit to him, he ran an incredible campaign, made himself the favourite choice of the opposition. By the time he, only one Conservative nominated him, Charles Walker. He had to scramble to get on the, you know, he had all, everything he needed from the opposition MPs, he didn't have enough on the Conservative side. I think only a handful of Tories voted for him in the, in the final say. So that just shows you, in a, in a 20, 30 year period, how far he'd come. And then he took on the speakership. And as I say, it was a remarkable journey that took him there. Um, but I think that was the only option to him in which he could sort of bear the influence that he wanted to have. And was, was the reason that the Tory MPs didn't support him, was did they see him as a, as a traitor, basically, the way that, he, that he'd shifted? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, fascinating thing about John Burko is that many people have felt shafted by him over the years. You know, his, his former comrades, they used to call him the Federation Conservative Students. There's a, a great tale there, which you'll, I won't bore you with now. Uh, by about how about by the book <laughs> uh, available next spring um, <laughs> in which he uh, basically shafted them and then his, his views changed and over the years a lot of bodies were left behind him basically where people felt that he had he'd thrown people under a bus or sold them down the river uh, and he was also very critical of the Conservative Party so you know what happened was that Labour it, it had gone Betty Boothroyd in 92 Michael Martin in 2000 so that was two consecutive Labour speakers 
uh, prior to being speakers. And so the Labour Party basically decided, well, it's going to have to be a Conservative, so let's give them a Conservative. Yeah. And the, the Tories' actual uh, preferred candidate was Sir George Young, and John Burke very much was not their preferred candidate. But via support from, you know, obviously Labour and government at the time, uh, they got them across the line as a nominally Tory speaker. Again, it's a, it's a lifetime ago now, but he, he came to prominence in the, in the wake of the expenses scandal when the reputation of the yeah. Parliament was um, pretty much, um, well, it's probably as low as it is right, right now, but it certainly was at a low, a low ebb. Um, how far has he been a reforming speaker? How far has he kind of strengthened the institution of, of Parliament, do you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he plays to basically restore the reputation of Parliament. So at, at that point, it was at an all-time low. I would probably argue that the views of MPs and Parliament is probably lower now than it was even then. I mean, right. it's, I mean that's a, that's a, an essay topic for another time. Um, he was, a, you know, he was a great reformer. He, my, the way that I sum up is, he did great things, often not in great ways. I mean, he could be very uncompromising and aggressive. He introduced a crash. Uh, he introduced more diversity in some of the uh, sort of senior appointments. Rose Hudson Wilkins, speaker's chaplain. He made sure that she, you know, the first black and, and I think the first female um, speaker's chaplain, made sure that that appointment happened. He uh, emboldened the House by awarding more urgent questions. He was a thorn in the government side. And the Commons, like before, was not really a fixture. Bear in mind, you know, the size of the Labour majority. The Commons had nowhere near the influence that it does now. Now, of course, part of that is because it's a minority government. But undoubtedly, Burko's been a great performer. But part of the problem is that he would go about these things a bit like a minister encountering sort of institutionalised thinking in the civil service. You know, great reformers have had to push, you know, knock down walls. And Burko would do that, but he would do it in a way that was very uncompromising. And as a result, you know, there was a lot of collateral damage. Kevin, he's, I think as Seb touched on that, he's not been a popular guy with the government. Um, you know, some backbenchers would argue, well, that's that's the role of the Speaker, to be that thorn in the side of the government. Talk us through some of the, the recent battles that he's had with the front bench and, and whether you think there's anything in those kind of accusations of him being biased in favour of Remain on the Brexit question. Yeah, I mean, it's mainly... It's really come to uh, a head over, over Brexit. I mean, he's never made any, any secret of the fact that he personally is a Remainer. Um, famously, uh, his car or his wife's car... Um, around here has this bumper sticker bollocks to Brexit on it, you know. So you can understand why that gets a lot of Tory MPs backs up. Now he has um, used the power of his of his position to um, break convention. Um, he's taking advantage of the fact that you know this place operates more on convention than on a, a codified rule book. So he's he's twisted. Um, the traditions in such a way as to make it easier for amendments to be put down, which um, made it difficult for the government to get its Brexit legislation through. Now, he would argue that all he's doing is giving a voice to Parliament. He is His job is not to be a thorn on the side of the government, but his job is to allow Parliament to express its will. So, you know, there have been several examples of where ordinarily another speaker might have made it a little bit easier for the government to get legislation, Brexit legislation through, whereas he has made it easier for the opposition or for opponents of the government's position to have a voice and to table amendments and basically to make things difficult for ministers. Now, that has really as you can imagine, got the backs up, not just of Theresa May's government, but also Boris Johnson's. Yeah. 
I think an important date in, in Burko's history is the 3rd of February 2017 when he appeared before students at University of Reading and he revealed that he voted to remain, as you, as you mentioned, Kevin. From that point forward, I, mean, I can't think of any contemporary or, or even historical reference when a speaker has spoken out on such a controversial issue. The, the big strategic gamble there was that everything he did from that point forward would be seen through the lens of how his views on Brexit. So he kind of gave up that defence of, of bias. Now, it, maybe he felt, I can become this figure that he has, this figure of adulation amongst the Remain establishment, something he perhaps has always craved. But another interesting thing is that, of course, he dealt with governments and, you know, Theresa May in particular, and now Boris Johnson, who took a very much a less is more approach to scrutiny in the House of Commons. And so he had to get procedurally creative when, you know, it's an amazing thing. MPs weren't going to be allowed to vote on the mm-hmm. triggering of Article 50. They weren't going to be allowed to vote on the Brexit deal. I mean, it is remarkable to think about where we are now versus where we were. And Burko had to get creative. But it's a huge gamble. Uh, and one that I'm still trying to get my head around is that he revealed how he voted. And in doing so, he laid himself very much open to charges of bias, which people will, probably would have guessed how he would have voted anyway, based on what he did in the chair. But you've always got that defence of, I'm the chair and I don't get involved in politics. And he gave up that to, I think, the detriment of the position. Kevin, there are a lot of Tory MPs who will be quite glad to see the back of him, aren't there? Do you think the next speaker will end up being um, quite a uh, sharp contrast with John Burke? I think that's inevitable. Uh, I think a lot of them you've seen thus far in, 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 in hustings is that they've been trying to stress the fact um, that they want to be a little bit more conservative with a, with a, with a small C. Um, they're not going to uh, be in a continual state of revolution, which is what the last 10 years has felt like. I think they want to return to being a more traditionalist um, speaker. Now, I think the, the the one candidate who is described as the the continuity Berko candidate is Harriet Harman. She has pledged to maintain his reformist agenda. And I think, I mean, again, uh, big health one here, my political predictions are usually wrong, but at the moment, it's looking unlikely that she will probably win and it's somebody like Lindsay Hoyle who's the clear favourite um, is the most likely candidate to win obviously I could be proven wrong early next week when, when, when the election takes place but Lind- Lindsay Hoyle is very popular on the Conservative benches and is seen although he's a Labour MP is seen as being somebody who's much more traditionalist and will return the speakership to something akin to what it was like before John Berko became became speaker Seb, who, who have you got your eye on for the next speaker? Well, I think Lindsay is the frontrunner. If I was a betting man, I'd probably have a punt on Ellen Lang, uh, I think, is, is the kind of outsider who's had a good campaign. She's currently a deputy speaker. Currently deputy speaker, one of the three deputy speakers, as is Lindsay's the most senior. Um, I just, I, I have a sense that, you know, often the frontrunners and these things don't, necessarily win I, I think she's also similar to Lindsay in that she's a steady hand she's got a sense of humour she's got command from the chair as, as to to be fair all the candidates uh, I just think as I, I, I minded to agree with Kevin I think Harriet is a strong candidate some people won't like the continuity Burko stuff particularly on the Conservative benches she's made a big thing about a woman being the next speaker and there'll be others like her on the Labour side so you could well see a swing towards Eleanor if it looks like that's no, Harry's not going to quite make it. So I, I, I would just, you know, she's four to one now. She was ten to one or more, I think, a while ago. So the odds are starting to narrow in her favour, and I think she's um, just one to watch. 
Now, so without asking you to um, give away the good stuff for free, what is the most interesting thing you've learned or the most surprising thing you've learned about John Burko as you've been doing your research? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want to ruin my serialization. Uh, so I think, I think the most interesting thing for me and, and part when you know this, you can start to understand him better, is that when he was at school, he was bullied, and he was bullied quite badly. Um, there's a story about when he was thrown in this biology pond at, class, at, at school by classmates, and they said to him, Burko can be in there with the other amphibians. And he has a huge phobia of, of wasps and bees, and they used to just corral these bees you know, to him, and he would just absolutely flip out. So, anyway, when you understand that, and the fact that he came from middle to lower working class family uh, his father was a taxi driver his father was Jewish his mother wasn't so he wasn't Jewish as a result because it's passed down through the mother he never really fit in okay so he didn't fit in at school family life was, was I think you know it was difficult in parts obviously the separation of parents is never easy uh, and I think that's kind of why he ended up going towards authoritarian politics. But when you understand that about Burko being bullied, you can see why he sees himself as a defender of, of parliament, you know, standing up to the, the bully boys in, in government. And you can see why he gets angry. That much about his character, I think, personally, starts to make sense when, once you understand where he came from. Of course, one might argue that it developed a bit of a blind spot to the nature of bullying that would also go on to plague his career. Yeah, Kevin, we haven't really touched on that yet, but there have been some serious allegations yep. levelled against um, Burko and there is a feeling among some, certainly some staffers that he hasn't done enough to root out bullying as as speaker. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of his, his time, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, his time as speaker has coincided with the rise of the Me Too movement and um, a greater awareness of bullying and harassment and why it's wrong and why it should be challenged uh, and there's no doubt that this place just by its very nature uh, has had a major problem with that down through the years now it's finally thankfully come out in, into the light and it's been addressed but there is a I think a justifiable criticism of um, Speaker Berko that he hasn't grasped the nettle as well as he should have. Now that has come at the same time as he has personally faced, as you say, um, accusations of bullying of staff. And I think it's true, and he would probably admit it, that he has a an, ab an abrasive style. But he completely denies bullying. We should we should obviously stress that. But um, but yeah, that that will be a part of his legacy as well. Is that he probably hasn't done as much as he as he could have done to to tackle the bullying and harassment culture in, in the House of Commons. Seb, in a single sentence, how will John Burke be remembered? As a great reformer who did some very good things in not always particularly good ways. There you go, but still still read the book when it comes out in spring. That please, was just please a, read a, it. a short summary. <laughs> So we have uh, just got a few more minutes uh, with the clock ticking. We've just got a few more minutes left for listeners' questions. We've had a couple in this week. We are always thrilled to get your questions. So the first one is Alex Lawson, who asks, in this general election, who will be this year's Ben Gummer? He means by that the biggest MP, the most high-profile, surprising name, I guess, to lose their seat. Oh, my God. Jesus, Alex. I mean, it's only the first day of the campaign, for heaven's sake. How can we be expected to know? Um, I mean, God, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm really struggling to think of, of any names. I mean, the thing is, a lot of the, the biggest names are standing down voluntarily. You know, mm. we mentioned um, Amber Rudd, 
Nicky Morgan, obviously Ken Clark is going, um, Nicholas Soames, Dominic Grieve, as said mentioned, is going to have a big job in his hands. You're going to get Philip Hammond, he's not getting the, the whip back, so he's going to stand as an independent. I guess he'll probably stand down, uh, sorry, lose. David Gock is in a similar, similar, similar position. I mean, um, the idea that people with big names who can stand on an independent ticket will win is, is a nice concept but the way our politics works is it, generally speaking it doesn't turn out that way so we're going to see a lot of people who have played prominent roles in the last 10 years of Conservative government won't be here after election because they've been kicked out so I guess to answer Alex's question maybe Philip Hammond David Gott people like that Seb any guesses? I think uh, not about specific people but given the way that the Conservatives have pitched themselves and given the way the Labour are currently pitching themselves you could see the sort of electoral map somewhat recalibrated so what we traditionally understand to be, you know, southwest and southeast is kind of like traditionally more conservative-dominated could change with more Remain voting areas, particularly in the southeast, not the southwest. Um, you can see parts of the north vote for conservatives that you otherwise wouldn't have done. I think that could be the, the change that you see that you know more uh, Labour MPs from more traditional heartlands in the north. You can see some of them lose out to Tories and Tories in the southeast losing out to. I mean, I remember at the last election, Dennis Skinner was being talked up as being a potential um, Tory target. That didn't work out that way, although he, his majority was slashed quite considerably. So you never know. I mean, on a good night for the Tories, Dennis Skinner could go. On the flip side, though, um, there's, you know, Boris Johnson. There'll be a huge, huge effort to get rid of Boris Johnson in Uxbridge. Uh, it probably won't be successful because people tend to like having Prime Ministers as their local MP so that might help him. Ian Duncan Smith is another one who will be targeted relentlessly so you know you might well see tactical voting come into play I saw a story in the Times this morning saying that um, there might be some kind of Remain or anti-independence pact in Ian Blackford's seat to try and get rid of him, obviously that used to be a Lib Dem seat, used to be Charles Kennedy's seat um, before Ian Blackford was elected so you know there's potential, Joe Swinson even you know she won her seat back um, in Eastern Bartonshire, you know, so again, SNP could could really, I'm sure they will target that one heavily. I've even heard that Nigel Dodds in Belfast South um, could come under serious pressure from Sinn Féin. So, so there you go, Alex. I haven't said initially that I hadn't a clue. <laughs> I've given you about 20 names. So even surely one of them must be right. Surely. I've got to break this losing streak eventually. I'm, t- I'm just trying to imagine December the 13th when we're all covering... The PM losing his seat, <laughs> Joe Swinson losing her seat, <laughs> Corbyn not winning the election, and uh, yeah, Ian Blackford are gone as well, and we're just yeah. Uh, yeah. flailing around. And we'll be like, thank God we had that election to sort everything out. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got another question from Gordon Graham. I was going to say his name sounds like a serial, then I realised my own surname. Um, is there any chance, any chance at all, that during this election campaign... Politicians will just answer a question rather than repeating pre-rehearsed sound bites. And he has put hashtag We Live in Hope. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid you'll be living in hope for a long, long time. I don't. I don't think it's going to. It's going to happen. What I want to see is more Richard Bergen being interviewed by by Kay Burley because that's not going terribly well for him right now. If you don't know what I'm talking about, search it on Twitter because it's very funny. But uh, but no, it's going to be six weeks of rehearsed lines of sound bites, of hammering home the message, and we're all going to be driven absolutely round the twist. That's my, that's my confident prediction. I totally agree. I mean, Strong and Sable was rammed down our throats however many times 2017, for the many, not the few. 
just can't wait for it all to come again. <laughs> he said <laughs> unenthusiastically. Is that a tear I can see rolling down mm. your cheek there? So, um, with Get Brexit Done likely to be ringing in our ears for the next six weeks, um, we have to wish you goodbye for now. Uh, thank you very much for tuning into the Poll Home podcast and sending your questions in. We love to hear them. Don't forget you can sign up to our free seven-day-a-week breakfast briefing email. How's that for a pre-rehearsed soundbite? By going to politicshome.com forward slash register and uh, you'll get something great in your inbox every single day from the Poll Home team. Um, See you next week. Get my nephew a seat.